listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a little surprise that's waiting for you at the end of this episode. If you listen all the way through to the end, you'll get to hear a short clip of an interview I did for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, hosted by Danny Cordy. A full episode will be out sometime next week, so before you forget, pause this episode, look up the Screwed Up Moments podcast, and be sure to subscribe. We talk about the Dougie Center, what it's like to work with grief every day, and what inspired us to start Grief Out Loud. Danny is a kind, natural interviewer, and I had the best time talking with him. I can't wait to hear the full episode. So today's episode might get you thinking about moving. Not moving, moving, like to a new town or a new job, but moving your body in whatever ways work for you. Katie Arnold is an author, a mom, an ultra runner, and a grieving daughter. Katie's father died of cancer when her youngest daughter was just two months old. In the days and the weeks after he died, Katie developed intense anxiety about her health and the health of everyone she loved. Every physical symptom was a sure sign that she was dying. This is something I can completely relate to, and I'm guessing a few of you out there can as well. At least, I hope you can, so that I'm not the only one who's freaking out every time my eye twitches or my back hurts. A runner since a young child, Katie took to the trails of her hometown, Santa Fe, and ran and ran and ran. She ran up and down mountains, over ice and mud and dust and sand, racking up more and more miles. Eventually, she decided to sign up for her first ultra marathon. It was a 50K race. And that was a decision that kickstarted a commitment to running longer and longer races, including the Leadville 100, which, for the record, is 100 miles. Running this far, heck, sometimes just running around the block, takes endurance. It takes dedication. And it takes a willingness to hang out with yourself and your mind for a really long time. That kind of reminds me of grief and how it takes a ton of endurance. It also requires the capacity to be present with all the thoughts and the emotions and the physical reactions that come along on the grief ride. Katie wrote a memoir about this time in her life. It's called Running Home, and it's really, really good. She interweaves her present-day wrestling with grief and anxiety with memories of her father, who was also an artist and an adventurer. This memoir is so much more than a book about running. It's about finding your way back to yourself in the midst of heartbreak and overwhelm. Katie, thank you so much for joining me on Grief Out Loud today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I am as well. Let's start with how how would you describe your father? Uh, My dad was very much a creative wandering soul. And he was, for, for all, largely all of his career, he was a photographer for National Geographic. And so he went out on assignment all over, 
the world and the country. And he was just so interested. He was a storyteller through photographs and he wanted to capture moments, the moments that so many of us miss because they're small. He was always on the lookout for that. And so he really inspired me to be an observer. I mean, I think first and foremost, that's what he was. He was um, an observer of the world and he had great capacity for the human story and, and telling the story through pictures. Um, and he also just loved to explore and sort of ramble around the world and, and just pay attention. As I was reading your book, I, that, that came through so clearly, you know, mm, in your good. memoir, Running Home, and that it seems as though that is a piece of him that you carry forward and your detailed observation of yourself, of your grief, of the relationships around you and, and the way your book interweaves photos taken by your dad and also photos taken by you of your father. Mm, I love that you noticed that or picked up on it and also note the photographs because that was a really important part of writing this book was weaving in some of his pictures. Uh, he had left behind this incredible archive, as you would imagine. He really was this documentarian kind of before YouTube and everyone was <laughs> doing selfies. You know, it, it was like a little ahead of his time, um, but he wanted to capture it all. He had this incredible hunger for capturing life and, and not just the beautiful parts, but sort of the harder moments or the poignant moments. Um, ordinary moments. And, and I've certainly taken that on in my life. And, and that's largely inspired by him. And so much of your childhood relationship with him was really spent living apart after your parents got divorced. And then as an adult, you also lived almost across the country from one another. How did your relationship with him as an adult evolve? Yeah, I mean, it was very, um, our relationship in many ways has always been defined by distance, which sort of when you said that, or when I think about it, and I write about this in Running Home, you know, I sort of tabulated the amount of time we spent together very loosely, and it was not very much, but that does not correlate to his sort of how close I felt with him and, and very much a kindred spirit creatively. He, yeah, we were just very close. And he was also, I should say, like, very influential to me in terms of having an outdoor life and being out in nature and being in the fresh air and exploring. That was um, a huge influence on me. And so as we were, you know, when I became an adult and I, and I moved even farther away, because as a child, I lived in New Jersey with my mother and he was in Virginia. As a kid, that seemed like a huge distance. <laughs> and then, but when I moved to Santa Fe as an adult, it, you know, that distance just grew larger and larger. Um, but we really stayed close in our conversations. He was a great, a fantastic letter writer and a great phone conversationalist. We had weekly calls as a kid. And then when I was an adult, often too, where we would just, he wanted to know things. He wanted to know about our lives and not just the superficial things. You know, he was really interested. And in that way, he was so present, even when he was physically absent. And we would see each other, you know, once or twice a year when I was an adult. Um, but we, our, our relationship was so much in writing and in conversations on the phone. Isn't that weird to think that I don't know. It's just, it's, it's interesting that we were so apart and yet so close. 
Yeah, as you're talking, I was thinking of your dad as like a keeper of uh, the lost arts of phone conversations and yes. letter writing, like actual letters, not just emails. And long letters and like just I, I spent a semester in college in Australia and um, I was desperately homesick. This was I'm dating myself, but this was before like email was widely used. I certainly didn't have email. And so the only way to um, be in touch was um, airmail, right? Those like crinkly blue envelopes that you wrote right on and then sent. And it took, seemed like to take, took weeks to get across the ocean. And I think I called home twice, but my dad every Friday at his desk at National Geographic would sit down and write me a letter. And these were, you know, three or four page type letters telling me about his work you know, what assignments he was working on. He would go to New York for the National Magazine Awards. He was telling me that what National Geographic won. I mean, he was really speaking to me as a peer, you know, as someone who was a creative person too and cared. And this is when I was 20 years old, you know, I hadn't entered the professional world, but I found them one day in my shed, in my garage in Santa Fe. And, you know, they were, there's this cardboard box at the top of the um, shed. I had no idea what was in it. And I pulled it out and it was all these letters. And it was like being transported back to that spring. And I could see my homesickness and then reflected in the letters my father wrote me. It was beautiful. As, as young children, and I hear this all the time working at the Dougie Center, kids really create stories for why things happen, especially things that are out of their control. And when your parents' marriage ended and you uh, lived states apart, you had a particular storyline of like what happened. And then when you were older, you and your father had some interactions and some conversations that really shifted that story, which you, you get into sort of the details of that in mm -hmm. your book. But I'm wondering how did that storyline shift how you saw your father and how you connected with him? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that that is such an important point that as kids, we become storytellers to try to make sense of our world, right? And um, my parents separated when I was very young, you know, not even three, I think. And I, and it was such a different time, like kids really weren't told things back then. And I had very limited information to go on. And so I started trying to solve basically the mystery of what had happened. And I think in some ways, that's a hugely important reason I became a writer because I had those instincts early on that I wanted to solve the story. And I like to think of myself as a detective when I was a girl. One of my favorite books was Harriet the Spy, which is about a girl detective. She's very plucky and I liked her very much. And, and, and I thought, you know, that she became my model for trying to sort of gather clues and piece things together. Anyway, so in my childhood, I, I had this story that I had kind of invented. And, and it wasn't until I was in my early 30s and I was kind of starting to think about getting married myself that I heard from my father and he basically told me the story. And it was a completely different story than I had imagined it shifted so much about how I saw my father and also it changed nothing, right? Because we'd already lived our lives and it was so long ago. But what it showed me is that my father in telling me what happened, it was this incredible generosity of telling me the story and telling it in such a way that 
there's some painful moments that I hadn't expected. And he was very forthcoming, right? I think the jargon now is like he owned it, right? But that's really <laughs> what he did in, in this letter. And it was this beautiful gift. At the same time, it was incredibly painful to read things that I had never anticipated. That was this real turning point um, where I saw what it means to be human, which is to do things that you wish you hadn't or make some mistakes. But that does not need to be the end of the story, right? You can keep going and acknowledge them. And that's a gift because life is not black and white. You know, this, the narrative you think is true may be completely turned upside down, but you can still be an incredible father. And so, yeah, he just showed me really how to be human. And in that idea of like the story not ending, a, a big part of your book, you write about this really intense anxiety you developed after your father died, anxiety about your well-being, about the well-being of the people in your family, basically just about everybody dying mm -hmm. all the time, yeah. which I could right. relate to quite strongly. So thank you <laughs> for that validation. Oh, I'm sorry you can relate, but thank, I'm glad it was of help. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I can work with grieving families for 17 years and not develop some part of that. Um, yeah. But I think about anxiety, and anxiety is really about the story ending, right? Like there's a right, a wrong, a good, a bad, a yes or a no. How, what helped you in continuing your story and continuing to choose a life of adventure and experience in the face of that really intense anxiety? Yeah, that was a really um, turbulent time, as you alluded to. Like my father died pretty quickly. Um, it was less than 12 weeks from when he was diagnosed with kidney cancer to when he died. And I had just had a new baby. So I had like a two-month-old and I was flying back and forth from my house in Santa Fe with her because I was nursing her to his farm in Virginia. And I made as numerous trips that fall that he was dying. And, and each time I went back... And I was so glad to be there, but there's such a heaviness in the house with his dying and he was really declining quickly. I started to feel my grief as this physical sensation of heaviness or this layer on me that I, like, I thought I could like scrape off, but it was just, I was just coated in it. It's hard to say. It developed into this, you know, fairly quickly after he died, this anxiety that I was dying. It, I was, you know, I could hear a story on the news about someone with a rare disease and I would start to feel like I had that or I, you know, I, it didn't take anything. I was so porous and so vulnerable. And I didn't know at the time that grief was so physical like that, that it was sensations. Like I had aches all over my body and I was like, oh my God, I, you know, tumor on my spine or, you know, my neck hurts. And it was just the tension of grief in my body. But I didn't know that that was a thing. I thought grief was an emotion. And so the physical sensation scared me and made me think I was dying. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where there's tons of natural healers everywhere. And I'm super open person and tried a lot of them here, you know, and tried to find some relief from that anxiety. It was just this, it was basically a same, the same kind of impulse I had as a child to tell stories, to make sense of things. It, only now I was telling stories that were basically detrimental to me, you know, that like, oh my God, this like ache in my earlobe must be a tumor, you know, and it was, so it was just the same pattern, only like an overdrive. And, you know, I've tried lots of things. Acupuncture really helped. Many things helped. Some things didn't help at all, but 
what really helped me was being out in nature, in motion. And for me, that's running. Um, and I've been a runner my whole life since I was like six or seven. For me, running has not been really about competition, but about being outside, which has always been my safe place. So I started running after my, you know, in my grief, not started because I'd always been running, but when I noticed that when I would go running, even though I was just so heavy with sadness and I would go out into the mountains and this is like remote trails in Santa Fe, you know, it's not just jogging down the street. And yet, so in some ways it, it didn't make sense that I would feel good doing that. But in other ways it made total sense because, you know, nature is so big and it it's big enough to hold me and my grief and it's it, it's that feeling of being connected to something larger than myself so i could i could feel at peace for the short time that i was running and i could kind of you know the motion of my body running and and not having to think about running but just doing it kind of lulled my thoughts and i and i could go into sort of a moving meditation or a waking daydream where i wasn't so gripped by my fearsome thoughts as I as I was reading all of your runs, I kept thinking, so like there's a tingling in your head and you're convinced yeah. you have a brain tumor. Yeah. So that seems, you know, totally reasonable. And and so so I'm gonna put myself out in the middle of the wilderness where I could potentially like fall down and break something. I could get attacked by a mountain lion. I could get lot like you were really you're running rivers. You're doing all the things that I try to avoid doing, <laughs> trying to keep myself safe. And I was like, wow, it's so interesting to go into what many of us would perceive as extremely dangerous as to find uh, a respite from the danger you were experiencing and the stories you were writing about your physical symptoms. It's such a paradox, right? And there's something in there about courage is not the absence of fear, right? It was what the story tells me. It's sort of courage is going anyway, even when you feel the fear. Yeah, it's just, I think because I've always been and found so much solace and inspiration in nature. I mean, that just going back to my childhood with my father, we were always hiking or walking or doing, you know, floating rivers. And um, so it was where maybe unconsciously where I felt that he maybe was. And, you know, after he died, like his spirit was still there. And that was very unconscious. I, I was never thinking like, I'm going to run up this mountains and find my dad. But it was, you know, the outdoors has been my place like always and so um i think even with those perceived risks it still felt like a safer place than just the sort of intensity of of the fear i felt in my own mind so it was like a way to get out of my mind really was to be in my body in nature you know the imagination's a really powerful tool especially as a writer but not when you're in this acute anxiety state you know then it becomes kind of a form of self-savagery almost, like what I was imagining for myself. And so when I would run, I moved out of my, my mind and all those spinning worries and just into the rhythm of my feet on the ground and my legs and my breath and the trees. And then I would see like a mouse prints in the snow or I might see a coyote. And all of that just kind of could release me from the um, intrusive thoughts and the worry. So what running taught me is that my, my body was really healthy, that I could run 20 miles or 30 miles. My mind might be telling me something different, like, oh my God, that feeling in your head is a brain tumor. But then my body would show me otherwise. 
as a what I would call myself a casual runner. I mean, I've run <laughs> for 25 years, but I'm definitely not running uh, ultra running as mm. you uh, as you do with 50 Ks and 50 miles and 100 K races. But I, I was laughing to myself when I read the part uh, in your book where you you describe uh, you call them the excellent diversionary tactics of self-loathing and blame and petulance, mm. all the things that can distract you from the pain of running. Yeah. How, how do those line up for you with the ways that you've related to or tried to avoid grief? When I was writing that, it was sort of about being in a race and being at mile like 28 of a 32 mile race and you're just like the bubble thoughts over your head are like, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. You're so stupid for doing this. And, and I find that those aren't very helpful. I mean, they can divert you from the fact that like your legs are really tired and, you know, and you wish you were done, but just in terms of grief. Yeah. There's a lot, like I, I found in my grief, I have a lot of shame a lot of people will be like, well, what are you running from? You know, runners must be running away as an escape. And yes, there are many times when I run and certainly in the book where I'm like running to escape the dirty dishes in the sink or a deadline I'm on or sort of even like my daughters as toddlers, if they're like teething, oh my God, just get me out of the house for an hour. But again, nothing is black and white. So I am running from things sometimes, but 100% what's really driving me is that I'm running toward my true self and my true nature to see these thoughts as thoughts. And meditation has really helped me with this. Just circling back to an earlier question, you asked me what some of the tools were to get through that acute anxiety. I've certainly learned that meditation is a helpful way to practice working with your mind so that there's this idea of meditation that you're not, if you sit and meditate, you're not going to have any thoughts. And that's just not true Mm -mm. for most people, especially (laughs) early on, but you have the thoughts. The trick is, is that you have the thoughts, but you just see them coming in your head. And then you like clouds, you just see them drift by and you don't get stuck on any thought, right? You don't chase down, you know, the thought or make a storyline about it or, you know, spin out some elaborate narrative. You just see it and let it go. And, that's really what, you know, meditation has helped me learn not to get gripped by every thought I have and not to believe every thought I have. So yeah, running is just a way that I've learned to love not only the world I live in, but myself, which, you know, doesn't always come naturally. You're making me think I need to run more (laughs) get to some of these places. Yeah. I mean, again, it's not all the time. There's so many you know, I, and I write about this in running home. I have many days where I just will go like a hundred yards down the trail and literally want to lie down and like bang my fists into the ground. But I would just somehow keep going. I think that's the, if, if I could sum up running home in two words, it's just keep going. You mentioned earlier the idea of feeling a lot of shame in your grief. And I think that's one of those emotions and experiences that can catch people off guard the way, like for you, the the fact that grief could be so physical was surprising. What what did you feel shame about or in relation to? I think it was really, I, it's just this feeling I've carried since very young childhood. And I don't, I've tried to understand it a little bit, but I think it comes down to a story that I'd made up about my parents' divorce and that somehow must have been my fault, right? And that's a pretty typical 
response for a very young child at a certain age. I've learned like psychologically that something happens traumatic between, you know, when you're like three years old, that you take that on as your own, like that you must have created it. It sort of sounds narcissistic, like how in the world could that be my fault when you're, you know, two or three years old. And so ironically, I've then later had shame about the shame right? Like, who, who did you think you were that like, you would have been responsible. And so there's like two layers of shame, actually. It's like a shame factory inside of myself sometimes. Going back to, you know, earlier in our conversation talking about even though your father and you lived really far apart from a lot of your life, there was this connectedness. And, you know, when someone dies, and they're no longer here in their physical form, there's many ways people continue to stay connected. And, and you've written about how you felt your father on many of those early training runs and, and that idea of like, keep going, he would show up in that, in that way. What are, what are some of the ways that you continue to stay connected to him today? Yeah, that's such a, it's such a good question. I mean, early, as you just mentioned, when I would go running and again, none of this, this was premeditated, you know, I just want to say that like, in grief, right? It's grief, I feel like it's such a fog. It's like this bubble. And you really can't see your way forward. And it's, it's a protective bubble, as it, you know, as it should be, it sort of dulls everything around you, because you're just so vulnerable. And um, so I was in this fog of grief. And, you know, it didn't make sense, as I said earlier, that I would want to run and that I would go running, but I did. And I had no idea where it was taking me. I just sensed that it was important when I would run, I, again, I didn't go running to look for my father, but early on in those runs after he died, I would feel him come to me. And it wasn't like I saw his face or I even heard his voice. It was like a presence that certainly helped early on. And, and then little by little, I, he sort of stopped coming in that way when I would run. But what was happening simultaneously was that my sister and I were sort of going through all that he'd left behind, his incredible archives, um, not only photographs, which we knew about, we knew that his archives was, you know, impressive and there would be amazing, like we would understand who he was through his photographs. But what I didn't know was that he had also left behind uh, letters, many, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of letters and notebooks he also had done many audio tapes, which I remember because when we were a kid, he would lug around this black Panasonic tape recorder that was like half the size of a suitcase. And he would just put <laughs> it down on the table in front of us and give us the sort of like sheepish grin and be like, okay, just pretend this isn't here. Pretend you don't see this. And then he hit record. And he would just record these very like ordinary times with us which used to just drive us a little bit nuts, as you would imagine, being a young kid and then an adolescence, like rolling their eyes at, your, you know, at their father. But the result was that there was so much material he'd left behind and he had organized it all and it was all labeled. And so I stayed close to him in, in just this sort of discovery of these letters and, and notebooks. And, and it's funny, like a different kind of person maybe a more organized, systematic person <laughs> might have gone through these things faster or sooner after he died, right? It, they were all there. I mean, the, the actual night he died, I went down to his basement office because I really felt like I wanted to be close to him. And I thought if he was anywhere still in the house, his, you know, his energy would be there. You know, it was too painful, right? It was too raw. 
I unconsciously decided in that moment that I wouldn't tear through everything and find everything out all at once. So I just went little by little. And in that way, it was this sort of serendipitous way that I kind of kept, he kept coming back to me. And I felt that I was learning who he was in a much more nuanced and deep way than I had when he was alive. Even though some of the things I found were painful, it, it was a way to kind of keep my relationship with him alive. There's a moment in running home where I'm worried that I found the last bit of him. But what I've realized since then, since the book has been out, like there is no last thing. Now the book itself is part of the story and people who read the book and have reactions to the book are carrying the book forward and the story keeps going. And a lot of this, of the way that you stay connected with your father is through knowing him, uncovering him, discovering more about him through what he's left behind. What in this moment would you most want your dad to know about you and your life? Oh, gosh, there's so many things. Uh, I mean, I'd want him to really know his granddaughters. Like my two daughters now are nine and 11. And I would just want him to see how like, game they are and curious and engaged and you know just fiery to see all the things that we do with them which is really his legacy like you know he took us on these river trips and bicycle trips and oh my god hiking and just walking around in the woods my husband and I do that and he did have this moment before he died like one of his last visits one of my last visits with him and I write about this and running home he you know pulls me aside and says I'm proud of the way you're raising the girls. It was so moving because he was very weak and that he took the time, you know, he made the effort to say that. So I'd want him to know that. And then I'd want him to see the book and his own photographs in it. Mm. There was a moment when I had to edit, um, choose the photographs that I would include in the book. And that was the most daunting thing. I mean, um, he, you know, he had hundreds and hundreds of thousands in in a hard drive on my, on my desk and, I just thought like, how in the world can I edit these and choose these? And I think it was my sister who said, only you can. It was such a gift because I had been thinking, well, dad's not alive. And like, he was the editor. He would know which ones were the best. And my sister just said, no, you know, it's only you can. And, and she was so right. It was like, it's my story. And, and dad would have given me the thumbs up to make my choices. And that's ultimately, gosh, isn't that what a great parent does? It's like, give you all like so much guidance. But then in the end, they're like, this is all you. Yeah, it was really special. So those are just a few of the things. And I wish he could be at one of my races, you know, at a finish line. Although he really was in sort of this very magical way. When I ran the Leadville 100, it had been raining the last like drizzling for the last like 15 miles. It was nighttime. It was almost midnight. And just as I was coming, maybe like 100 feet from the finish line, and literally it had just been raining, the clouds parted, and there was a shooting star over the finish line. And in some ways, I felt like that was my father, you know. And he'd always been at the finish line of this race I'd run as a kid, and I write about that in the book. And so, you know, it was sort of fitting to see that. It was really moving. Yeah. Whoa. And to help you get over the 
finish line after the Leadville 100 is a hundred miles, right? Yes. hundred miles. And, and I, you know, I will just say that as part of the story, I had, won, I was winning, like I won the race when I ran across the line. And so there was, you know, there's the finish line tape and the, and the shooting star and my children are there and my husband. And it was just like the total package. Well, listeners, I highly recommend going out and getting running home Katie Arnold's memoir, not to say you have to go run 100 miles in order to cope with your grief. However, it's a very inspiring book on many levels. And the photographs are beautiful. And, and Katie, I'm just grateful for you for, you know, carrying your father's work forward, but also sharing your story with all of us. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And I just, I do want to say something based on what you just said, right? You don't have to run 100 miles to, to kind of work through your grief. And you don't even have to run like, Every, right, you have that thing inside of you, that little voice that says like, oh, this makes me feel better or try this. And that's the voice to listen to. That's that intuitive voice that knows what you need and knows how to heal yourself. And I say to people too, when I'm out talking about the book is that you really could just cross out every time I write running and write your thing, whatever that is, like whatever you feel moved to do. And the message is the same. It's just that running was kind of my vehicle through my grief. But yeah, it doesn't have to be extreme at all. There's ways to keep going no matter what your going looks like. Exactly. That's beautifully said. I like that. Thank you. Well, Katie, thank you again for joining me today on Grief Out Loud. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And listeners out there, I will put in the show notes all the ways to connect with Katie through her Instagram and a link to the book. So definitely go check out Running Home, a memoir. And thank you again, as always, for tuning in, listening, for emailing me, for telling me what you think about the show. You know, after listening to today's conversation, I'd really love to hear from you. Like, what's your going? How do you keep going in your grief? You can email me at help at Dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And if you have any other suggestions, recommendations, thoughts, reactions, send them away. I love to hear from you. So thanks for listening and hope you'll join us again next time. Okay, everyone, here's that clip from the Screwed Up Moments podcast I told you about. You deal with the topic of death and morality on a day-to-day basis, which to me at least, I think would be extremely burdensome. <laughs> and anxiety provoking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So so what what is it what is it like for you? Does it ever, you know, get too much at times? Uh yeah, this is another interesting one to reflect on. Yeah. I usually don't feel like it's too much, but I think if you ask my friends and family, mm. they might say it's too much because we we can't go anywhere, any trip, anywhere without me being like, oh, yeah, somebody died here doing this, or somebody died here doing that, or you could die there, don't do that, or definitely don't do that, you're going to die. So I carry all those stories with me all the time. And I think what's different is if I didn't have particular faces and experiences to go with these stories, it might feel different. Like I could go out and be like, oh, I know theoretically that people die climbing mountains. I know theoretically that people die driving down the road. I know theoretically that people die in Hawaii swimming. Yeah. But I go to those places and I think about the kid who sat in group with me and told me about their dad who died while they were snorkeling and had a heart attack at the same exact beach in Hawaii that I'm now standing at. 
And you know, I'm not sharing those stories for confidentiality reasons, but I'm carrying those images and I'm carrying the, the human grounded reality of all the different ways that people can die all the time everywhere I go. So, you know, that, that, that kind of affects me, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me a little more cautious about things, but I kind of was that way before I even started doing this work. So mm. it feels like it might have just been a good lineup with how I was uh, predetermined, I would say. Mm.